You're listening to the B2B Content Show, a podcast about the how, what, and why of B2B content marketing. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Jeremy Shear. The podcast is brought to you by Conversa, a boutique agency that uses the art of conversation to showcase your special sauce to help get prospects to know, like, and trust you. So, as I'm sure you all know, one of the best things that you can do to create really high-value original content is to base it on original research. Now, of course, that's easier said than done. It's not just a matter of time and money when it comes to doing research. I mean, both of those things matter, but it's also about understanding how to do research because some ways are better than others. For example, if you're going to send a survey to your customers, how do you know that you're crafting the survey questions in the right way so that you're going to get quality data? And once you get that data, what exactly do you do with it? How do you read it to get the most value from it? So to help answer those and other questions related to doing original research, my guest today is Becky Lawler. She's founder and chief research and content officer at Redpoint, which is a company that helps B2B brands conduct original research. Thanks, Jeremy. Excited to be here. So let's just, let's jump right into it. I think like with most projects, doing original research successfully requires knowing what you're doing, right? Having clear goals and understanding like why you're doing the research, the story that you're trying to tell, right? So where do you see companies falling short when it comes to this kind of goal setting? Yeah, at the very beginning, I think, you know, companies may have a lot of goals, but like they may want lead gen from it. They may want media mentions from it. But as they kind of get excited about getting to start asking their target audience questions, sometimes they see that they they forget kind of the end objective a little bit in that process as they start just thinking about, oh, we could ask this or we could ask this, which becomes more about what they're curious to know. And they need to be certain that you're keeping front and center. Like if your goal is lead gen, you really need to be thinking not, not about what you want to know, but what does your target audience want to know? You need to deliver findings that are going to induce curiosity and engagement from them. Um, same with the media. If, you, if, if getting press is a big goal for your original research project, you need to really be thinking about what does the press care about right now? What topics are trending? You know, how would I frame this in a way that the media would pick up? What would be those like three key stats that the media would really grab and want to publish? And so I just see often if you don't kind of really keep that goal front and center as you, as you move into the actual survey design, people sort of lose sight of that a little bit and start thinking about, oh, yeah, it'd be cool to know this. It'd be cool to know this. And you have to keep asking yourself, does this go back to our original goal? Is this going to actually be what the audience that we're trying to serve this to cares about? Mm -hmm. Okay, right. So, yeah, keeping the end audience in mind. I mean, there are kind of two audiences, right? Like, I'm sure if you're doing the research, you're pretty curious to know how it's going to turn out, right? And what the results are going to be. But ultimately, the point is to use the research to create content for your audience, right? I think there's a way to kind of kill two birds with one stone. Certainly, there, you know, when you're doing it for content marketing, this isn't market research where it's not just specifically to understand, you know, your customers and, and how they feel about your product. You're doing it to push it out as content. So you need to keep that in mind. But you could certainly have some questions that may be for internal knowledge or may serve dual purpose of being interesting to your audience and also really interesting for you to know. The key is to make sure that you're 
primarily focus on your outcome goals. So if you decide to have one or two questions that you know are just for internal, yeah. that's fine. You've decided that, you know, they're not really maybe going to be part of your external push with the findings, but you need to make sure that you've balanced that. Okay. So when we talked before to prepare for the interview, you said that you need to go into the research with like a hypothesis in hand, right? Can you give me an example of, you know, what that might look like and maybe drawing from a client that you've worked with? What does a, a solid hypothesis look like? You know, AI is, is trending right now, right? Everybody can't stop talking about AI. So, so this would be one, you know, you could have a hypothesis of like, we think that 80% above are going to say that they've adopted some form of AI in the last six months. That would be a, a hypothesis that you'd be trying to prove. Now, I'm going to say that actually may not be all that interesting because everybody thinks that that's probably true. So there's that factor where you can create a hypothesis that you know, but then I think you still need to step back and say like, okay, but would that be in interesting or would it be more interesting? What if we actually believe that the hypothesis is that 80% are actually holding back on fully adopting AI. Now that might be a lot more surprising. If you're in a market where your customers and what they do, like maybe you work in a highly regulated industry and you know that in those industries, they actually aren't kind of jumping on the AI bandwagon because they have security concerns and compliance concerns that are kind of holding them back. Then you're creating a hypothesis that you think you can prove, but also is one that would be surprising maybe to, to people and more likely to make them kind of pick that up and be like, wow, why is that? You know, or I had one, I had a client that we're fielding a survey mm -hmm. right now. It was around for their industry. They don't actually use SaaS tools, which everybody would think SaaS tools are just so common right now that everybody is using them. So that was kind of like, they had a hypothesis from what they knew of their audience that actually everybody wasn't using SaaS tools. And so that is one of the things that was on the survey and is could be like a leading headline that if it comes back out, you know, that even if it's like a third aren't using SaaS tools, maybe, you know, that's not a giant stat, but it's still a surprising stat when you would think everybody would be. Okay. So it sounds to me like maybe even a better way to think about this is that you need to go into the research with like a really focused research question that you know, like an overarching question that's based on, like you were saying before, based on things you know your audience is interested in and, and like an open question, things that aren't already obvious, things people don't already know the answer to, but things that are kind of an open question, like how, what percentage of companies in, in our industry do use SaaS products? Yeah. And Let's I think out. that, you know, that is part of the, the risk and the reward of doing these types of projects is you may not get the exact finding that you want to really align with your product or service, but you may be able to use that though in a different way or just kind of own it and talk about it and still bring that kind of curiosity to the process, I think is one piece of it. And along those lines, I wouldn't say just a stat, but I really think the other piece of this, a lot of people, maybe they jump into creating the survey design and like, oh yeah, let's ask this and this and this. And you need to step back again and create a narrative. Again, you, you don't know that your narrative is going to exactly line up, but you want to have a story that you're telling. The SaaS tools, like that was an example that that is just part of an overall story of maybe what are, you know, the challenges that this group is having and maybe not being able to use SaaS tools because maybe their companies don't allow it for compliance reasons or what, you know, or or this idea that the SaaS tools aren't actually 
doing as good of a job as home-built tools in this very kind of niche scenario. And then you know what your other follow-up data points you're going to talk about to also create that narrative and continue the story so that when you get to the survey, what you don't end up doing, and you wouldn't really kind of maybe realize this until you get out and you get your data, is that you asked a bunch of questions that you're all interested in, but they're all disconnected. And now you don't have a connected story to tell with your data. Mm. So that's, again, on the front end, you need to sort of Mm -hmm. take a moment to create what you believe the narrative is going to be based on your hypothesis. And again, including some some of those hypotheses may be more known and you just want the stats to be able to kind of back up what you know is true in the industry, but the findings aren't actually out there. Or you want some that are also that curiosity-inducing, surprising, but true that you think that you could field and, and, and get those kind of results from. Okay, got it. And then again, so if I'm hearing you correctly, if you don't have a clear understanding of the story that you're trying to tell, then it's hard to know what questions Correct. to ask. Because like you said, you might end up just asking a bunch of questions that at the end of the day, don't actually add up to uh, like a coherent narrative. And you just have a bunch of data points that might be interesting in and of themselves, but don't really add up to that yeah, story. Exactly. You're trying to tell. So, so let's get to the questions, because I think that's an important one, too. And as I mentioned in my you know, little spiel up front, it might seem like it's easy. You just ask some basic questions and put them in a survey. But you know, there are people who do this for a living, right? And the exact way that you word a survey question can really skew the answer one way or the other and, and, and you know, affect the quality of the data. So talk about that a little bit. Am I right, in fact, that that's an issue that people need to be aware of? And if so, what are some best practices for crafting really solid Yeah, questions? it is definitely something. I think it's actually a really overlooked area. I think a lot of people think, oh, I'll just whip out a survey and put it in the field. I see it all the time. I've taken plenty of surveys myself where I see everything from just not kind of controlling the quality from a sense of who's even taking it, asking the right demographic questions to even know, like, do the people responding to the survey even have the qualifications to be answering these questions? Because what good is your data if somebody goes through the survey and you don't really know, even know who they are, but they turn out like, I don't know, you have an auto mechanic answering questions for a survey on plumbing. <laughs> the person doesn't know that the skills, you know, you have somebody answering and they're, they're taking it just cause, but they're not an expert in that, in the questions that you were asking. So it is important. One best practice is to make sure that you are collecting demographic information that's going to be useful to helping you understand who's taking it. And that you're not just collecting, but that you're qualifying. Um, So maybe some people don't actually get to take your survey. That's one way to not end up with a whole bunch of bad data you have to clean on the back end, um, is that they just don't get to take the survey if they don't meet certain qualifications because they're not who you really need to hear from. So there's no point surveying everybody if they're actually not in a position to answer the questions reliably. The second piece of it is that now getting into the actual questions themselves and how you word those is important for clarity. Folks may use jargon and it's very clear to them because they use it every day, but the folks they may be asking may or may not know that jargon. So you need to think about who am I speaking to? Are they somebody that's going to understand this jargon? Should I reframe it in non-jargon? Or is there a term that I just need to define? Again, maybe they understand the term, but it can be nuanced in the industry. So you may need to just define like, hey, so we're all on the same page. This is what we mean by this term. And just put it there so that, again, you know that you're going to be getting quality responses throughout. 
what type of question you choose to use also makes an impact on the data you get on the on the other end. For example, I've seen sometimes where folks have used a lot of sliding scale questions like on a scale of one to 10, you know, how do you feel about X? And the problem with that is you got to know what you want to get out of this data. If your goal is to turn this into a headline, it's really hard to have a headline that says, you know, first of all, you gave them 10 options. So the percentages are going to be smaller because they have 10 choices. So everybody could choose anywhere on that 10 scale versus if you narrowed it down to like four or five, then they have to fall into more buckets. Secondly, it's just not as interesting to say whatever your audience is like. 80% of marketers said on a scale from, you know, one to 10, seven to eight of them believe X, Y, Z. You know, it's much more powerful if you actually said, is this issue extremely important, important, somewhat important, not important, and narrowed your bucket. And then you can turn that into a headline mm -hmm. that's like, guess what? 87% of marketers think it is extremely too important to do X, Y, and Z. So it's just going to come yeah, you're sort of collecting the same mm -hmm. data, but you can't use it in the same way, depending on which question you chose. So it's important to understand how the type yeah. of question you okay. choose will impact how you're going to translate it into content and headlines and messaging. And has it been written in a way that is easy to do that with? Okay, right. So again, it goes back to keeping like the end goal in mind of creating messaging and content that you can actually use. And how you word the questions is going to impact that. I was just going to say it can make a really big difference. And I just wanted Go to ahead. give an example of this. I had a client who previously they were using a, a different agency, but that agency was relying on them to just help craft the survey design. And as they noted, we're not survey design experts, we're marketers. When they switched over to me and I really took control of the survey design process and went through the best practices and you know was thinking about the output when they released, they do a, a state of IT ops report annually, and this was their fourth year. When they released it this year, in one month, they got three times the leads than they got all of last year. And they really said their data had been kind of meh, and then the report had kind of been meh. And that all started with not having a great yeah. survey. So it can make a, a huge difference if you have a properly done survey. And it's actually the most probably crucial piece of getting it right. Yeah, clearly. Are there some kinds of questions that are better than others in a given context? Say like the example you gave, do you feel that this is very important, kind of important, et cetera, like the multiple choice as compared to say the open-ended, just tell us what you think. And it's like, you can write yeah. out, is one better than another or well, does it just it, depend? It does depend a little bit, but most of the time you want to make it cognitively easy on your survey takers. Nobody wants to spend a lot of time and effort. I'd say the more engaged your audience is with the survey, sometimes if you have an audience that is really responsive and they really are passionate about the topic, they're willing to kind of put more effort into it. But if you're like taking the survey out to a panel company or even an email list, likely they still need, they need some incentive. But even then, if it becomes too cognitively, too much effort for the reward, they're going to drop. So Typically, I recommend sticking with multiple choice questions. And if you ask an open-ended question, you need to be really kind of thoughtful about why you're asking it and bring in your expectations to realize that most people aren't going to sit down and write a paragraph. And you're going to get a lot of people that are just going to type in none or don't know because mm -hmm. they, they may know, but they just don't want to deal with 
like typing in a paragraph. You'll get some good responses in there. So it's not totally worthless. And I wouldn't say you should never do it, but they should be used very sparingly. And I would never have more than a couple of open-ended questions in a survey that is of a significant length. Again, that's different if you're if you're surveying your customer. There are places where it's applicable. If you're just doing like an end of, you know, you just finished a project with your customer and you're just asking them a five question survey about what their experience was, maybe you can put a few more open-ended questions in and it's very short and it's somebody you have an established relationship with and there's a reason you're doing it. But in this type of thing where you're surveying a lot of people and you're planning to use it for content, the other thing is typically these surveys um, should be anonymous if you really want to get quality data because people are just going to be more likely to be honest and open if they feel know that it's anonymous. So sometimes people think, oh, we'll put an open-ended one and then we can use all these quotes. Well, you could maybe like use quotes from the demographics. So you could say, you know, IT professional company of 500 plus employees or something, you know, so it's still anonymized, but a little bit of demographics with it, but you're not going to be able to say, hey, Jeremy said X, Y, and Z on this question. If you're, again, following the best practice of keeping it anonymized. Yeah. So now the whole point of this is to gather data, right? And I mean, I know for myself, whenever I've done this kind of thing or looked at it, I get the data back and I'm like, okay, what do I do now? I can make some very basic moves with interpreting the data, but I'm always like, I don't know what I don't know. And maybe there's a lot more here that I don't totally understand what to look for. So what about that? Like, what do you see? What are some common problems that you see with companies when they're using the data to tell stories? And what are best practices around that? Yeah. So the first thing is you need to be able to clean your data. And that means taking, so most survey softwares will just spit out a nice PDF of the results that anybody even with no data experience can kind of say like, okay, great. I got my results. Here it is. You know, 75% said this and this and this, you know, you can just take that data and plop it right in and do nothing else. You may want to look back. And I will say, if you use social media to get some of your responses, that's where the highest kind of fraud typically <laughs> comes in, in my opinion, although it can also come in vendors. So you need to have confidence in the panel vendors you're using. Some are great, some are not so great. But so the first step is cleaning it. And one of the things you can look at, like if your survey should take three to five minutes to take and somebody did it in one minute, do you think that their responses are really valid or did they just click, click, click all the way through and not even read the question? And that's where it goes back to even the survey design. I usually halfway through have a quality check where the question might just be, if you're reading this, select none of the above. And if they don't select none of the above, they're disqualified because clearly they weren't reading it. That's a way to kind of catch some of those speeders before they complete the survey. You might like want to look at IP addresses and make sure you don't see multiple of the same IP address, meaning somebody just took it over and over to get the incentive. Again, that would be more likely with an email or social media survey where it's a little bit more open. You kind of just put it out there for anybody to take. So those are some of the things. Once you've cleaned the data though, there's a lot you can actually still do with the data beyond kind of the initial, you had a 20 question survey, you get your 20 responses back. This is where you have an opportunity to take that demographic data, like the size of the companies, the level of the position, maybe you surveyed everyone from executives down to individual. And you can look at that, the questions that you did ask by that demographic data. So you can say, hey, did large companies have different challenges than small companies? Do executives think things different about this topic than employees? And sometimes it can be even be like, maybe you want to kind of create like a 
maturity. Maybe you asked what level of maturity they were about something and how to select. And so then you take that question like, okay, based on their maturity level on this issue, like let's say, you know, how, how mature are, are they with marketing automation, right? What challenges do they experience? What is the employee experience like? All these things. And you might be able to go through your other questions and actually kind of then create a whole new narrative that's kind of like, here's what the most mature companies are doing and here's what the least mature. And maybe you get a really interesting narrative about how impactful it is to be having invested in whatever it was, your technology versus those that haven't invested in it yet. I know like Content Marketing Institute does that a lot with their looking at those that have made a higher investment versus those that haven't or are more mature on their content marketing than those that aren't. That's another way you can kind of dig into that data. So what I'd say is it's, you've already spent all this money to get the data, spending the time and effort. And even if you have to hire an outside data analyst to come in and do it, to go to that next level of digging into the data and finding what I think often are the more interesting stories than the data that you just got back. Often it's those kind of sub stories that become really interesting uh, to move forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. And like I said, you know, if, if you're not used to that, if you know what you're doing, I think it's probably easy to miss out on a lot of those opportunities to get some of that more fine grained stuff. Like you said, the, even the more interesting stuff. Right before this call, I was just reviewing a report. It was about AI for marketers and it was really mostly freelancers. And it was, you know, again, it was just put on by two other um, freelancers and but I was like, okay, it would be curious. The majority were freelancers, but there was about 30% that were actually in-house marketers. You know what I'd really be interested in is what is the difference? Like, you're just giving me the data of 70% thought this, but what I'd really be curious is, did in-house marketers perspective, was it different than a freelancer's perspective? Because very different goals, yeah. purposes, worries. So that's that was the one that I was just looking at this morning. I was like, wow, missed opportunity. I would love to have this data sliced more mm. minutely. Yeah, indeed. Now, you have a resource on all this stuff, right? I do. I have a resource about <laughs> mistakes that you can make and how to avoid them to just ensure that you're doing really credible research and getting the best results you can. And that you can find that on my website, or I think, Jeremy, you can also share the, the link to that. Yeah, definitely. I'll put a link in the show notes. It sounds like a really, really useful resource if you're going to give this a shot. Now, Becky, we've covered a lot of ground. I'm sure listeners might have additional questions. So what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn, so they can connect with me, direct message me on LinkedIn. I also have a website, redpointcontent.com. They can also go there for more information, or there's a link to book a call if they're interested in a deeper discussion. Okay, excellent. We'll put a link to uh, all that stuff in the show notes as well. And uh, meanwhile, thank you so much for a great discussion. Really interesting. Yeah, thank you for having me. I can never uh, stop talking about original research, so it's always fun. All right. That's it for this episode of the B2B Content Show. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, you might as well give the show five stars and leave an over-the-top comment about how much you love the podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who you think would be a great guest, let us know. You can contact me at jeremy at conversa.com. That's C-O-N-N-versa.com. 
The B2B Content Show is brought to you by Conversa Podcasting. Check us out at conversa.com to learn more about how we help B2B brands start podcasts to connect through conversation with the buyers and decision makers you need to get to know to grow your business. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.